You're listening to the Oldham Podcast Network. Welcome to the 30 Days of Stories on the Underground Railroad in Kentucky, produced by the Oldham County History Center. I am your host, Ann Cannon, and I am the Office Programs Manager for the Oldham County History Center. The Underground Railroad refers to the efforts of enslaved African Americans to gain their freedom by escaping bondage. Wherever there were enslaved African Americans, there were people eager to escape. The first step on the Underground Railroad began when that freedom seeker stepped away from the place where they were enslaved. A home, a farm, a field, a steamboat. Many freedom seekers began their journey unaided, following the North Star, and many completed their self-emancipation without assistance. But each decade leading up to the Civil War in the United States, where slavery was legal, there was an increase in active efforts to assist escape. Kentucky became the best option available for fugitives to escape from Tennessee, Alabama, and other southern states, including Kentucky. Because of the 664-mile border of the Ohio River allowing for more potential to reach the free soil of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, Kentucky became central to slave escapes by virtue of its physical and political geography. For that reason, Kentucky and the states along its northern border became central to the Underground Railroad, a battleground where freedom was tested and stories of courage and sacrifice were made. Today's reader is Isabel Eisenhardt. Isabel was born in Trier, Germany, the oldest city in Germany. She studied in Munich, Germany, earned a degree in chemistry and microbiology. She loves living in Oldham County because of the people, southern hospitality, rolling bluegrass hills, and beautiful thoroughbred horse farms. She has raised her nine children here. Four are in college, and the five youngest are still at home with her. She and her family spend most of their free time volunteering in both local and worldwide communities, preferring to be hands-on and actively involved. As a parent, she said it is touching to see each of her children develop into different people, and this is easily displayed in their volunteering preferences. Her children volunteer in different areas, such as environmental activism, giving back as tutors for students with English as a second language, fostering abandoned animals in need, supporting local food banks, and even firefighting and working in disaster response situations. She believes nobody is perfect and we all do the best we can, yet she hopes to raise her children how her family raised her, which is to work for others more than for yourself and to be a voice for those who go unheard. This began in Germany when she was a little girl listening to her grandmother, tell stories of the Second World War. As a teenager, her grandmother's best friend was pulled from her very arms to be loaded onto a truck, carted off like livestock to one of the many concentration camps and never heard from again. Her grandmother told how she once found a secret message, a letter sewn into the pocket of a coat she bought that would soon start a chain of support, much like the Underground Railroad. Her grandmother often told her about her grandfather, who bravely held illegal secret supply lines to those who needed support during the Nazi regime persecution. Her grandmother would often talk about other friends she knew who had been robbed of their freedom and lives. 
Isabel says it was stories like these that shed light on her own privilege as a white person, and it has strengthened her sympathy for people suffering from horrendous abuses. Today, Isabel will be reading A Free Metropolis, Cincinnati and the Margaret Garner Story. A Free Metropolis, Cincinnati. The following is a part of a poem taken from Voice of the Fugitive, Canadian newspaper, editor Henry Bibb, November 18, 1852, volume 2, number 24. Ohio's not the place for me, for I was much surprised, so many of her sons to see in garments of disguise. Her name has gone throughout the world, free labor, soil and men, but slaves had better for be hurled into the lion's den. So farewell, Ohio, I'm not safe in thee. I'll travel on to Canada, where colored men are free. Although the free soil of Cincinnati became a focal point for freedom seekers, it was not particularly the nirvana for the fugitives as emanated from his poem when looking at a brief sketch of Cincinnati's history. Cincinnati grew into a thriving metropolis. During the 19th century, with the completion of the Erie Ohio Canal in 1845 and the expansion of railroad construction, Cincinnati could expand trade and business using the Ohio River as well as reach into the Great Lakes. Cincinnati became a supplier of many products of which the chief export became pork, earning its nickname Porkopolis. The city also became the largest manufacturer of steamboats, attracting all the associated subsidiary businesses. These opportunities attracted German and Irish immigrants in large numbers, and by the end of the Civil War, Germans comprised 30% of the population. Black communities had settled into the Queen City and became an early native population, but were threatened and subject to racist bias due to the proximity of the slave trade across the river in Covington. Blacks, for the most part, had little prospects for upward mobility in the workforce because of the lack of educational opportunities. As Irish immigrants moved into the region, they competed with blacks for labor-intensive and low-paying jobs, adding to another layer of prejudice and competition for black workers. The mix of free blacks on the north shore of the Ohio River and enslaved blacks on the south shore threatened slaveholders who were increasingly edgy and fearful of losing their property. Stories of resistance and slave uprisings such as John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry and Nat Turner's rebellion along with narratives of successful slave escapes and abolitionist newspapers gave encouragement and hope for other freedom seekers to cross the borderland. Black laws were created in these borderland free states to discourage black settlements and deny blacks equal rights. These laws were passed in part to reduce the influence of free blacks because of the potential they had to harbor and help fugitive slaves. Slave laborers provided the menial labor needed for iron foundries, hemp, 
corn and tobacco production, manuals construction, slaughterhouse work, movement of goods and cargo on ships, etc. Slave laborers worked both sides of the river, under permission and control of the slaveholders. Free blacks, new immigrants, and enslaved workers worked side by side. This mix of workers created a strange context of racial bias on many different levels as people were defining the American dream. Cincinnati, in particular, was strict because of the concern of slaves entering into the city and congregating on their days off. Slaveholders let their laborers cross the river, often at liberty to work as well as leisure time, and free blacks crossed over to the Kentucky side in Covington. On the Kentucky side, the city of Covington did not want free blacks wandering around their streets and passed ordinances to restrict the loitering of free blacks. Cincinnati passed ordinances to exclude blacks from benefits of the poor fund and excluded their admission to the infirmary, hospitals, poor houses, and so on. Blacks had to obtain assurances and secure bonds under the sponsorship of whites if they wanted to purchase property. Blacks were often cajoled and harassed by local sheriffs and bounty hunters, particularly after the 1850 Fugitive Act, who were in search of fugitives. The allure of a large free metropolis across the river from a slave state was too much to resist in spite of black laws, harassment, and threat of repudiation. Fugitives could blend in the free black settlements of a big city. People like Henry Bibb had successfully traveled the route, back and forth, several times. Frederick Douglass, Louis Hayden, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Josiah Henson, among others, had broken the chain. Their stories were public, inspiring, and invoked support. Cincinnati became the most popular and attractive route on the Underground Railroad as the abolitionists took root in this Queen City to help fugitives on their northward journey. Slaves living in the vicinity of the Ohio River, new blacks residing on free soil, and went to their homes seeking advice and assistance. A young Frankfurt fugitive disappeared while on a trip with his mistress in Cincinnati. He was tracked down by police to a woman that lived on 6th Street in Bucktown, Cincy. The woman raised a shout, and people began pouring out into the streets, allowing the fugitive to escape in the crowd. John Hatfield, a free black, recalled how a slave catcher intercepted a group of Kentucky fugitives crossing the river and concealed them in a basement, waiting for his confederates. When area blacks realized what was happening, they sneaked the fugitives out of the basement, two at a time until all 13 were free. One of the most famous stories of freedom seekers along the Ohio River is the Margaret Garner story. The mural of Margaret Garner and her family crossing the Ohio River at Covington Flood Wall are one of the Dafford murals that depict the history of Covington and Newport, Kentucky. The mural depicts the tragic story of Garner, 
a fugitive slave from the A.K. Gaines Maplewood Plantation in Boone County. Underground Railroad conductor Levi Coffin captures the most compelling slave escape taken from his autobiography in the following. No case that came under my notice while engaged in aiding fugitive slaves attracted more attention and aroused deeper interest and sympathy than the case of Margaret Garner, the slave mother who killed her child rather than see it taken back to slavery. This happened in the latter part of January 1856. The Ohio River was frozen over at the time, and the opportunity thus offered for escaping to a free state was embraced by a number of slaves living in Kentucky, several miles back from the river. A party of 17 belonging to different masters in the same neighborhood made arrangements to escape together. There was snow on the ground and the roads were smooth. So the plan of going to the river on a sled naturally suggested itself. The time fixed for their flight was Sabbath night, and having managed to get a large sled and two good horses belonging to one of their masters, the party of 17 crowded into the sled and started on the hazardous journey in the latter part of the night. They drove the horses at full speed and at daylight reached the river below Covington, opposite Wester Row. They left the sled and horses here and as quickly as possible crossed the river on foot. It was now broad daylight, and people were beginning to pass about the streets, and the fugitives divided their company that they might not attract so much notice. An old slave named Simon and his wife Mary, together with their son Robert and his wife Margaret Garner and four children, made their way to the house of a colored man named Kite, who had formerly lived in their neighborhood and had been purchased from slavery by his father, Joe Kite. They had to make several inquiries in order to find Kite's house, which was below Mill Creek in the lower part of the city. This afterward led to their discovery. They had been seen by a number of persons on their way to Kite's and were easily traced by pursuers. The other nine fugitives were more fortunate. They made their way uptown and found friends who conducted them to safe hiding places where they remained until night. They were put on the Underground Railroad and went safely through to Canada. In a few minutes, Kite's house was surrounded by pursuers. The masters of the fugitives was officers and a posse of men. The door and windows were barred, and those inside refused to give admittance. The fugitives were determined to fight and to die, rather than to be taken back to slavery. Margaret, the mother of the four children, declared that she would kill herself and her children before she would return to bondage. The slave men were armed and fought bravely. The window was first battered down with a stick of wood, and one of the deputy marshals attempted to enter, but a pistol shot from within made a flesh wound on his arm and caused him to abandon the attempt. The pursuers then battered down the door, with some timber and rushed in. The husband of Margaret fired several shots and wounded one of the officers, but was soon overpowered and dragged out of the house. 
At this moment, Margaret Garner, seeing that their hopes of freedom were in vain, seized a butcher knife that lay on the table and with one stroke cut the throat of her little daughter, whom she probably loved the best. She then attempted to take the life of the other children and to kill herself. But she was overpowered and hampered before she could complete her desperate work. The whole party was then arrested and lodged in jail. The trial lasted two weeks, drawing crowds to the courtroom every day. The counsel for the defense brought witnesses to prove that the fugitives had been permitted to visit the city at various times previously. It was claimed that Margaret Garner had been brought here by her owners a number of years before to act as a nurse girl and according to the law which liberated slaves who were brought into free states by the consent of their masters, she had been free from that time and her children, all of whom had been born since then, following the condition of the mother, were likewise free. The commissioner decided that a voluntary return to slavery after a visit to a free state reattached the conditions of slavery and that the fugitives were legally slaves at the time of their escape. John Joliffe, who defended Garner, was known for representing slave fugitives. After the verdict to return Garner to the slaveholder, Joliffe suggested that Margaret should be arrested for murder. John Joliffe, who defended Garner, was known for representing slave fugitives. After the verdict to return Garner to the slaveholder, Joliff suggested that Margaret should be arrested for murder, which would result in another trial and possibly give Garner another chance for acquittal. Slaveholder Gaines got wind of the plan and sold the Garner family to his brother in Arkansas. While on the boat downriver, Margaret jumped overboard with her nine-month-old baby in arms and then rescued by boat hands, but her baby drowned. The family was shipped down river and Margaret died of typhoid fever in 1958 while enslaved. Her story was horrific in several aspects. The idea of a mother killing her children was unnatural and horrific, but the thought that she would do so as an act of spiritual freedom to release her children from the brutality of enslavement captured public sympathy. Her story was embellished in the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison, which won a Pulitzer Prize. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the Oldham Chamber and Economic Development Office.